Chapter 14 of The Wonderful Year by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 14. They had further talk together the next afternoon. A lost remnant of golden autumn freakishly returned to warm the December air. The end of the terrace caught a flood of sunshine, wherein Lucilla, wrapped in furs and rugs, and seated in one of the bentwood rocking-chairs brought out from winter quarters for the occasion, had established herself with a book. The little dog's head appeared from under the rug, his strange Mongolian eyes staring unsympathetically at a draughty world. Martin sauntered out to breathe the beauty of the hour, which was that of his freedom. He explained the fact when she informed him that Felice and Bigodin had both left her a few minutes before, in order to return to their duties. Martin being free, she commanded him to stay and entertain her. "'If I were a good American,' she said, "'I should be racing about in the car, doing the sights of the neighbourhood. "'But to sit lazily in the sun is too great a temptation. "'Besides,' she added, "'I have explored the town this morning. "'I went round with Monsieur Bigodin.' "'He is very proud of Brantôme,' said Martin. "'She dismissed Brantôme. "'I have lost my heart to him.' He is so big and comfortable and honest, and he talks history like a poetical professor with the manners of an embassy attaché. He is unique among landlords.' "'I love Picorda,' said Martin, "'but the type is not uncommon in these old inns of France, especially those which have belonged to the same family for generations. There is the proprietor of the Hôtel du Commerce, at Perigeux, for instance, who makes pâté de foie gras, just like Picorda, and is a well-known authority on the prehistoric antiquities of the Dordogne.' He once went to London for a day, and what do you think was his object? To inspect the collection of flint instruments at the Guildhall Museum. He told me so himself. "'That's all very interesting,' said Lucilla. "'But I'm sure he's nothing like Bigodin. He can't be. And his hotel can't be like this. It's the queerest hotel I've ever struck. It's run by such unimaginable people. I think I've lost my heart to all of you. There's Bigodin, there's Felice the dearest and most delicate little soul in the world, the daughter of a remarkable mystery of a man. There are Baptiste and Euphemie and, and Marie, the chambermaid, who seem to exude desire to fold me to their bosoms whenever I meet them. And there is yourself, an English university man, an exceedingly competent waiter, and a perfectly agreeable companion. The divinity crowned with a little sealskin motoring toque, which left unhidden the fascination of her upbrushed hair, cooed on deliciously. The knees of Martin, leaning against the parapet, became as water. He had a crazy desire to kneel at her feet on the concrete floor of the terrace. Then he noticed that between her feet and the cold concrete floor there was no protecting footstool. He fetched one from the dining-room, and had the felicity of placing it for her, and readjusting the rugs. "'I suppose you're not going to be a waiter here all your life,' she said. He signified that the hypothesis was correct. "'What are you going to do?' It was in his awakened imagination to say, "'Follow you to the ends of the earth.' But Common Sense replied that he did not know. He made no plans. She suggested that he might travel about the wide world. He breathed an inward sigh. "'Why not the starry firmament? Why not, rainbow-winged and golden spear in hand, swoop a bright archangel from planet to planet?' "'You ought to see Egypt,' she said, "'and feel what a speck of time you are "'when the sentries look down on you. "'It's wholesome. 
I'm going early in the new year. I go there and try to paint the desert, and then I sit down and cry, which is wholesome too, for me. Before Martin's inner vision floated a blurred picture of camels and pyramids and sand and oleographic sunsets. He said, infatuated, I would give my soul to go to Egypt. Egypt is well worth a soul, she laughed. Words and reply were driven from his head by the sight of a great splotch of grease on the leg of his trousers. A dress suit worn daily for two or three months in pursuit of a waiter's avocation does not look its best in stark sunlight. Self-conscious, he crossed his legs as he leaned against the parapet in order to hide the splotch. Then he noticed that one of the studs of his shirt had escaped from the frayed and blackened buttonhole. Again he felt her humorous eyes upon him. For a few moments he dared not meet them. When he did look up, he found them fixed caressingly on the Pekingese spaniel, which had slipped upon its back in the hope of a rubbed stomach, and was waving feathery paws in pursuit of her finger. A moment's reflection brought heart of grace. Greasy suit and untidy stud hole must have been obvious to her from his first appearance on the terrace. Indeed, there must have been obvious while he had waited on her at déjeuner. Her invitation to converse was proof that she disregarded outer trappings, that she recognised the man beneath the soup-stained raiment. He uncrossed his legs and stood upright. Then he remembered her remark. "'The question is,' said he, "'whether my soul would fetch enough to provide me with a ticket to Egypt.' She smiled lazily. The sunlight being full on her face, he noticed that her eyelashes were brown. Wondrous discovery!' "'Anyhow,' she replied, "'where there's a soul, there's a way.' She took a cigarette from a gold case that lay on the little iron table beside her. Martin sprang forward with a match. She thanked him graciously. "'It isn't money that does the real things,' she said, after a few meditative puffs. "'To hear an American say so must sound strange to your English ears.' "'You believe, I know.' that Americans make money an almighty God that can work any miracles over man and natural forces that you please. But it isn't so. The miracles, such as they are, that America has performed, have been due to the naked human soul. Money has come as an accident or an accretion and has helped things along. We have a saying which you may have heard. Money talks. That's just it. It talks. But the soul has had to act first. Money has nothing to do with American independence. It was the soul of George Washington. It wasn't money that invented the phonograph. It was the soul of the train used by Edison. It wasn't money that brought into being the original Cornelius Vanderbilt. It was the soul of the old ferryman that divined the power of steam both on sea and land a hundred years ago, and accidentally, or incidentally, or logically, or what you please, founded the Vanderbilt fortune. I could go on forever with instances from my own country, instances that every school child knows. In the eyes of the world, the almighty dollar may seem to rule America, but every thinking American knows in his heart of hearts that the almighty dollar is but an accidental symbol of the almighty soul of man. And it's the soul that we're proud of, and that keeps the nation together. All this, more or less, was at the back of my mind when I said, where there's a soul, there's a way. As this little speech progressed, her face lost its expression of serene and humorous contentment with the world, and grew eager, 
and her eyes shone and her voice quickened. He regarded her as some fainéant Homeric warrior might have regarded the goddess who descended to clout haste from Olympus to exhort him to noble deeds. The exhortation fluttered both pride and pulses. He saw in her a woman capable of great things, and she appealed to him as a man also capable. "'You have pointed me out the way to Egypt,' he said. "'I'm glad,' said Ucilla. "'Look me up when you get there,' she added with a smile. "'Seems a big place, but it isn't. Cairo, Luxor, Asuan, and at any rate the Semiramis Hotel at Cairo.' And then she began to talk of that wonderful land, of the mystery of the desert, the inscrutable gods of Granik and Karnak brooding over the ghost of Thebes. She spoke from wide knowledge and sympathy. An allusion here and there indicated how true a touch she had on far divergent aspects of life. Apart from her radiant adorableness which held him captive, she possessed a mind which stimulated his own so long lain sluggish. He had not met before the highly educated woman of the world. Instinctively, he contrasted her with Corinna, who in the first days of their pilgrimage had dazzled him with her attainments. She had a quick intelligence, but in any matter of knowledge was soon out of her depth. Yet she exhibited singular adroitness in regaining the shallows where she found safety in abiding. Lucilla, on the other hand, swam serenely out into deep blue water. From every point of view she was a goddess of bewildering attributes. After a while she shivered slightly. The sun had disappeared behind a corner of the hotel. Greyness overspread the terrace. The glory of the short winter afternoon had departed. She rose, Helia Gabalos, also shivering under her arm. Martin held the rugs. "'I wonder,' said she, whether you could possibly send up some tea to my quaint little salon. Perhaps you might induce Felice to join me. That was all the talk he had with her. In the evening the arrival of an English motor-party kept him busy, both during dinner and afterwards, for not only did they desire coffee and liqueur served in the vestibule, but they gave indications to his experienced judgment of requiring relays of whiskies and sodas until bedtime. Again he did not visit the Café de l'Univers. The next morning she started for the Riviera. She was proceeding thither via Toulouse, Carcassonne, Narbonne, and the coast. To Martin's astonishment, Felice was accompanying her on a visit for ten days or a fortnight to the south. It appeared that the matter had been arranged late the previous evening. Lucilla had made the proposal, swept away difficulty after difficulty, with her air of a smiling but irresistible providence, and left Bigodin and Felice not a leg, save sheer churlishness, to stand on. Clothes? She had ten times the amount she needed. The perils of the lonely and tedious return train journey? Never could Felice accomplish it. Pegoda turned up an indicateur des chemins de fer. There were changes, there were weights. Communications were arranged with diabolical cunning not to correspond. Perhaps it was to confound the Germans in case of invasion. As far as he could make out, it would take seventy-four hours, forty-three minutes, to get from Monte Carlo to Brantome. It was far simpler to go from Paris to Moscow, which, as everyone knew, was the end of the world. Felice would starve, Felice would perish of cold, 
Felice would get the wrong train and find herself at Copenhagen or Amsterdam or Naples, where she wouldn't be able to speak the language. Lucilla laughed. There was such a thing as l'agence cook, which moulded the indicateur de chemin de fer to its will. She would engage a man from Cook's, before whose brass-button coat and a gold-letter cap band the indicateur would fall to pieces, to transfer Felice personally, by easy stages, from house to house. Felice had pleaded her uncle's need. Lucilla, in the most charming way imaginable, had deprecated as impossible any such colossal selfishness on the part of Monsieur Bigodin. Overawed by the Olympian, he had peremptorily ordered Felice to retire and pack her trunk. Then, obeying the dictates of his sound sense, he had asked Lucilla what object she had in her magnificent invitation. His little girl, said he, would acquire a taste for celestial things, which never afterwards would she be in a position to gratify. To which, Lucilla, How do you know she won't be able to gratify them? A girl of her beauty, charm, and character, together with a little knowledge of the world of men, women, and things, is in a position to command whatever she chooses. She has the beauty, charm, and character, and I want to add the little knowledge. I want to see a lovely human flower expand. She had a graceful trick of restrained gesture which impressed Bigourdin. I want to give a bruised little girl whom I've taken to my heart a good time. For myself it's some sort of way of finding a sanction for my otherwise useless existence. And Bigourdin, clutching at his bristles, had plucked forth no adequately inspired reply. The will of the new world had triumphed over that of the old. All the staff of the hotel witnessed the departure. Monsieur Martin, said Felice in French, about to step into the great car, a medley to her mind of fur rugs and dark golden dogs and grey cats and maids and chauffeurs and innumerable articles of luggage. I have scarcely had two words with you. I no longer know where I have my head. But look after my uncle and see that the laundress does not return the table linen black. Bien, Mademoiselle Felice, said Martin. Lucilla, pink and white and leopard-coated, shook hands with Bigourdin, thanked him for his hospitality, and reassured him as to the perfect safety of Felice. She stepped into the car. Martin arranged the rugs and closed the door. She held out her hand to him. "'We meet in Egypt,' she said in a low voice. As the car drove off, she turned round and blew a gracious kiss to the little group. "'Voilà un petit soucier d'Américaine,' said Bigodin. Puff, and away goes Felice on her broomstick. Martin stood shocked at hearing his divinity maligned as a witch. Here am I, continued Bigodin, between pretty sheets. I have no longer a housekeeper, seeing that Madame Tullier rendered herself unbearable. However, he shrugged his shoulders resignedly, we must get on by ourselves as best we can. The trip will be good for the health of Felice. It will also improve her mind. She will stay in many hotels and observe their organisation. From the moment that Martin returned to his duties, he felt unusual lack of zeal in their performance. Deprived of the celestial presence, the Hotel de Grotte seemed to be stricken with a blight. The rooms had grown smaller and barer, the furniture more common, and the terrace stretched outside a bleak concrete wilderness. Often he stood on the bridge and repeated the question of the memorable evening— what was he doing there, when the wide world was illuminated by a radiant woman? Suddenly, Bigourdin, Felice, the circle of the Café de l'Univers, 
became alien in speech and point of view. He upbraided himself for base ingratitude. He realised, more from casual talk with Bigorda than from sense of something wanting, the truth of Felice's last remark. In the usual intimate order of things she would have related her experiences of Chartres and Paris, in which he would have manifested a more than brotherly interest. During her previous absence he had thought much of Felice, and had anticipated her return with a throb of the heart. The dismissal of Lucien Vidio, much as he admired the gallant ex-curassier, pleased him mightily. He had shared Bigorda's excitement over the escape from Chartres, over Fortinbras's prohibition of the marriage, over her return in motoring state. When she had freed herself from Bigorda's embrace and turned to greet him, the clasp of her two little hands and the sight of her eager little face had thrilled him. He had told her, as though she belonged to him, of the things he knew she was dying to hear. And then the figure of the American girl with her stately witchery had walked through the door of the salle à manger into his life. The days went on dully, shortening and darkening as they neared Christmas. Felice wrote letters to her uncle, artlessly filled with the magic of the South. Two letters from Lucilla Meriton decreed extension of her guest's visit. Bigorda began to lose his genial view of existence. He talked gloomily of France's unreadiness for war. There were thieves and traitors in the cabinet. Whole army corps were notoriously deficient in equipment and transport. It was enough, he declared, to make a patriotic Frenchman commit protesting suicide in the lobby of the Chamber of Deputies. And what news had Martin received of Mademoiselle Corinna? Martin knew little, save that she was engaged in some mysterious work in London. "'But what is she doing?' cried Bigodon at last. "'I haven't the remotest idea,' replied Martin. "'Dis donc, mon ami,' said Bigodin, the gloom of anxiety deepening on his brow. "'You do not think, by any chance,' he hesitated before breathing the terrible surmise, "'you do not think she has made herself a suffragette?' "'How can I tell?' replied Martin. "'With Corinna all things are possible.' "'Except to take command of the Hôtel des Grottes,' said Bigodin, and he sighed vastly. One evening he said, "'My good friend Martin, I am feeling upset. Instead of going to the Café de l'Univers, let us have a glass of the Vieille Fin de Brigadier in the Petit Salon, while I have ordered Marie to make a good fire.' The old liqueur brandy of the Brigadier was literally, from the market standpoint, worth its weight in gold. In the seventies, Bigorda's father, during the course of reparations, had discovered, in a blocked and forgotten cellar, three almost evaporated casks bearing the inscription just decipherable beneath the mildew in Brigadier General Bigorda's old war-dog handwriting, Cognac, 1812. His grandson, who had lost a leg and an arm in 1870, knew what was due to the brandy of the Grande Armée. Instead of filling up the casks with newer brandy and selling the result at extravagant prices, he reverently bottled the remaining contents of the three casks, on each bottle stuck a printed label setting forth the great history of the brandy, and stored the lot in a dry bin which he charged his son to venerate as one of the sacred depositories of France in the family of Bigodin. Now, in any first-class restaurant in Paris, Monte Carlo, Aix-les-Bains, you can get Napoleon brandy. The bottle, sealed with the still mind-stirring initial N on the neck, is uncorked solemnly before you by the silver-chain functionary. It is majestic liquid, but not a drop of the distillation of the Napoleon grape is there. 
The casks once containing it had been filled and refilled for a hundred years. For brandy, unlike port, does not mature in bottle. The best 1812 brandy bottled that year would be today the same as it was then. But if it has remained for over sixty years in cask, you shall have a precious fluid such as it is given to few kings or even emperors to taste. I doubt whether there are a hundred gallons of it in the wide, wide world. The proposal to open a bottle of the old brandy of the brigadier portended a state of affairs so momentous that Martin gaped at the back of Bigodin on his way to the cellar. On the occasion of what high solemnity the last had been uncorked, Martin did not know. Certainly not on the occasion of the dinner of ceremony to the videos, in spite of the fact that the father of the prospective bridegroom was marchand de vin et gros, and was expected by Bigodin to produce at the return dinner some of his famous chambertins. Come, said Bigodin, cobbred bottle in hand, and Martin followed him into the prim little salon. From a cupboard whose glass doors were veiled with green-pleated silk, he produced two mighty court goblets, which he set down on a small table, and to each poured about a sherry glass of the precious brandy. Like this, he explained, we do not lose the perfume. Martin sipped. It was soft like wine, and the delicate flavour lingered deliciously on tongue and palate. "'I like to think,' said Bigodin, "'that it contains the soul of the Grand Armée.' They sat in stiff armchairs covered in stamped velvet, one on each side of the wood fire. "'My friend,' said Bigodin, lighting a cigarette, "'I am not as contented with the world as perhaps I ought to be. "'I had an interview with Monsieur Viriot to-day, which distressed me a great deal. The two families have been friends, and the videos have supplied us with wine on an honourable understanding for generations. But the understanding was purely mercantile, and did not involve the sacrifice of a virgin. Le Père Video seems to think that it did. I exposed to him the disinclination of Felice, and the impossibility of obtaining that which is necessary, according to the law, the consent of her parents. He threw the parents to the four winds of heaven. He conducted himself like a man bereft of reason. Always beware of the obstinacy of a flat-headed man. "'What was the result of the interview?' asked Martin. "'We quarrelled for good and all. We quitted each other as enemies. He sent round his clerk this afternoon with his account, and I paid it in cash down to the last centime. "'And now I shall have to go to the Maison Prunier of Perigeot, "'who are incapable of any honourable understanding, "'and will try to supply me with abominable beverages "'which will poison and destroy my clientele.' "'Recklessly he finished his brandy "'and poured himself out another portion. "'Then he passed the bottle to Martin. "'Sir toi,' said he, "'using for the first time the familiar second-person singular. "'Martin was startled, but said nothing.' Then he remembered that Bigodin, contrary to his usual abstemious habits, had been supplied at dinner with a cradled court of old canton, which awakes generosity of sentiment towards their fellows in the hearts of men. "'Mon brave,' he remarked after a pause, "'my heart is full of problems which I cannot resolve, and I have no one to turn to but yourself.' "'I appreciate your saying so very much,' replied Martin. "'But why not consult our wise and experienced friend of Fortinbras?' Voila, cried Bigodin, waving a great hand. It is he who sets me the greatest problem of all. 
Why do you think I'd let Felice go away with that pretty whirlwind of an American? Martin stiffened, not knowing whether this was a disparagement of Lucilla. But Bigodin, heedless, continued, It is because she is very unhappy, and it is out of human power to give her consolation. You are a gentleman and a man of honour. I will repose in you as sacred confidence. But that which I am going to tell you, you will swear never to reveal to a living soul. Martin gave his word. Bigodin, without touching on long past sorrows, described the visit of Felice to the Rue Maugrabine. "'It was my sister,' said he, "'for years sunk in the degradation of drunkenness, so rare among French women, and his madness covered too. Often she has gone away to be cured, with no effect. I've urged my brother-in-law to put her away permanently in a maison de santé, but he has not been willing.' It was he, he maintains, who in far-off, unhappy days, when, pauvre garçon, he lifted his elbow to often himself, gave her the taste for alcohol. For that reason he treats her with consideration and even tenderness. C'est beau. And he himself, you must have remarked, has not drunk anything but water for many years. Of course, said Martin, and his mind went back to his first meeting with Fortinbras and the lonely Petit Cornichon when the latter imbibed such prodigious quantities of raspberry syrup and water. It seemed very long ago. Bigodin went on talking. "'And so,' said he at last, "'you see the unhappy situation which Fortinbras, like a true Don Quixote, hath arranged between himself and Felice. She retains the sacred ideal of her mother, but holds in horror, very naturally, the father whom she has always adored. It is a bleeding wound in her innocent little soul.' "'What can I do?' Martin was deeply moved by the pitifulness of the tale. Poor little Felice, how much she must have suffered. "'Would it not be better,' said he, "'to sacrifice a phantom mother, for that's what it comes to, "'for the sake of a living father?' Bigorda agreed, but Fortinbras expressly forbade such a disclosure. In this he sympathised with Fortinbras, although the mother was his own flesh and blood. Truly he had not been lucky in sisters, one a bigot, and the other an alcoholique. He expressed sombre views as to the family of which he was the sole male survivor. Seeing that his wife had given him no children, and that he had not the heart to marry one of the damsels of the neighbourhood, he bewailed the end of the good old name of Bigona. But perhaps it were best, for who could tell, if he begat a couple of children, whether one would not be afflicted with alcoholic and the other with religious mania. To beget brave children for France, a man, nom de Dieu, must put forth all the splendour and audacity of his soul. How could he do so, when the only woman who could conjure up within him the said splendour and audacity would have nothing to do with him? To fall in love with a woman was a droll affair. But if you loved her, you loved her, however little she responded. It was a species of malady which must be supported with courageous resignation. He sighed and poured out a third glass of the brandy of the brigadier. Martin did likewise, thinking of the woman whose white fingers held the working of the splendour and audacity of the soul of Martin Overshaw. He felt drawn into brotherly sympathy with Bigodin, but for the life of him he could not see how anybody could be dependent for sole provisions of splendour and audacity upon Corinna Hastings. 
the humbly aspiring fellow, moved him to patronising pity. Martin strove to comfort him with specious words of hope. But Bigodin's mental condition was that of a man to whom wallowing in despair alone brings consolation. He had been suffering from a gathering avalanche of misfortunes. First had come his rejection, followed by the unsatisfied longing of the devout lover. It cannot be denied, however, that he had borne himself gallantly. Then the fading of his dream of the video alliance had filled him with dismay. Felice's adventure in the room Ograbin and its resulting situation had caused him sleepless nights. Lucilla Meryton had taken him up between her fingers and twiddled him round, thereby depriving him of volition, and, having put him down in a state of bewilderment, had carried off Felice. And today, last accretion that set the avalanche rolling, his old friend Video had called him a breaker of honourable understandings and had sent a clerk with his bill. The avalanche swept him into the Slav despond, wherein he lay solacing himself with hopeless imaginings and the old brandy of the brigadier. But human instinct made him beckon to Martin, call him to, and bid him to keep an eye on the quagmire and stretch out a helping hand. He also had in view a subtle and daring scheme. "'Mon brave ami,' said he, "'when I die,' his broad face assumed an expression of infinite woe, and he spoke as though he were seventy, "'what will become of the Hôtel de Grotte? Felice will benefit principally, bien entendu, by my will. But she will marry one of these days, and will follow her husband, who probably will not want to concern himself with hotel-keeping. He glanced shrewdly at Martin, who regarded him with unmoved placidity. To think that the hotel would be sold, and all its honourable traditions changed, would break my heart. I would not like to die without any solution of continuity. But, my dear Bigodin, said Martin, what are you thinking of? You're a young man. You're not stricken with a fatal malady. You're not going to die. You have twenty, thirty, perhaps forty years before you, in the course of which all kind of things may happen. Bigodin leant forward and stretched out his great arm across the fireplace until his fingers touched Martin's knee. Do you know what is going to happen? War is going to happen. Next year, the year after, five years hence, que sais-je, moi? But it has to come. All these pacifists and anti-militarists are either imbeciles or traitors. Those that are not dreaming madhouse dreams of the millennium are filling their pockets. Of the latter, there are some in high places. There is going to be war, I tell you, and many people are going to die. And when the bugle sounds, I put on my old uniform and marched to the cannon's mouth like my father's before me. And why shouldn't I die like my brother in Morocco? Tell me that. In spite of his intimacy with the sturdy thought of provincial France, Martin could not realise how the vague imminence of war could affect so closely the personal life of an individual Frenchman. No matter, said Bigorda, after a short discussion. I have to die some day. It was not to argue about the probable date of my decease that I have asked you to honour me with this special conversation. I have expressed to you quite frankly the motives which actuate me at the present moment. I have done so in order that you may understand why I desire to make you a business proposition. A business proposition? echoed Martin. Oui, mon ami. He replenished Martin's enormous beaker and his own, and gave the toast. 
à l'entente cordiale between our nations and between our two selves. Lest the uninitiated may regard this sitting as a dram-drinking orgy, it must be borne in mind that in such brandy as that of the brigadier, strength has melted into the gracious mellowness of old age. The fiery spirit that the cantiniere, or the vivandier, of eighteen twelve served out of her little waist-slung barrel to the warriors of the Grande Armée was now but a fragrant memory of battles long ago. A business proposition, repeated Bigoda, and forthwith began to develop it. It was the very simplest business proposition in the world. Why should not Martin invest all, or part of his little heritage, in the century-old and indubitably flourishing business of the Hôtel de Grottes, and become a partner with Bigoda? Lawyers would arrange the business details. In this way, whether Bigoda met with a gory death within the next two or three years, or a peaceful one a quarter of a century hence, he would be reassured that there would be no solution of continuity in the honourable tradition of the Hôtel des Grottes. It was then that Martin fully understood the solemnity of the occasion, the petty salon with the fire specially lit, the brigadier brandy, the preparatory revelation of the soul state of Bigorda. The unexpectedness of the suggestion, however, dazed him. He said politely, "'My dear friend, your proposal that I should associate myself with you in this business is a personal compliment which I shall never cease to appreciate, but—but what? I must think over it.' "'Naturally,' said Bigorda. "'One would be a linnet or a butterfly instead of a man if one took a step like that without thinking.' "'But at least the idea is not disagreeable to you?' "'Of course not,' replied Martin. "'The only question is, how shall I get the money?' "'Your little heritage, Pablo.' <laughs> "'But that is a console. Rond anglaise. I'd only get my dividends twice a year.' "'You could sell out to-morrow or the next day and get the whole in banknotes or golden sovereigns.' "'I suppose I could,' said Martin.' Not till then had he realised the simple fact that if he chose he could walk about with a sack of a thousand sovereigns over his shoulder. He had taken it in an unspeculative way for granted that the capital remained locked up behind impassable doors in the Bank of England. Instinct, however, restrained him from confessing to Bigordar such innocence in business affairs. "'If I did not think it would be as safe here as in the hands of the British Government, I would not make the suggestion.' Martin started upright in his chair. "'My dear friend, I know that,' he cried ingenuously, horrified lest he should be thought to suspect Bigorda's good faith. "'And you would no longer wear that costume?' Bigorda smiled and waved a hand towards the dress-suit. "'Which is beginning to show signs of wear,' said Martin. He glanced down and caught sight of the offending splotch of grease. The quick association of ideas caused a vision of Lucilla to pass before his eyes. He heard her rich, deep voice. "'We meet in Egypt.' But how the deuce could they meet in Egypt, or in any other Lucilla-lit spot on the earth, if he started innkeeping with Bigorda, and tied himself down for life to Brantome? A chill ran down his spine. "'Emir,' said Bigorda, recalling him to the petit salon, Martin had an inspiration of despair. "'I should like,' said he, "'to talk the matter over with Fortinbras.' "'It is what I should advise,' said Bigorda heartily. "'You can go to Paris whenever you like. "'And now, non parlons plus. 
I feel much happier than at the beginning of the evening. It is the brandy of the brave old brigadier. Let us empty the bottle and drink to the repose of his soul. He would ask nothing better. End of chapter 14